I'm Cesar Rubio, five-time past master of Palm Springs Laws number 693, and this is Masonic Muscle, where we focus on the strongest aspect of Freemasonry, the virtuous education of the mind, fortifying it with wise and serious truths, while at the same time encouraging all brethren to increase their level of fitness one degree at a time until it becomes the cornerstone of your daily routine, brethren, because Freemasonry is work. We're here to pump you up body, mind, and soul, getting closer and closer to that point within the circle. Welcome back. The Origin of Freemasonry, A New Theory. The Philalethes Lecture for 1992, Part 2, by Cyril M. Batham. We are all prisoners of our own environment and can think and reason only in terms of the conditions in which we exist. It is virtually impossible to think in terms of the environment of the 16th and early 17th centuries. But the effort must be made if we are to understand, even in general terms, the theory I am putting forward. As the late Professor Huxley once said, it is not possible to understand, only to think that one understands. Try, therefore, to put yourself in the position of a senior member of a monastic order in the mid-16th century. You are a devout Catholic, and your whole life revolves around your faith, the supreme authority of which is the Pope. The king is about to destroy that authority and place himself as the head of a church in England, solely because he wishes to divorce his Catholic wife and marry a Protestant heretic. Your monastic order is about to be dissolved, and you are to be deprived of the time-honored customs that are so vital to your faith. Would you not be determined to preserve those cherished customs, those sacred rites, so essential to your faith, even despite the extreme penalties that faced you? You would know of the executions of so many Catholic priests who had celebrated Mass in secret and of the Catholic laity who had befriended them. According to Owen Chadwick, the Reformation, 123 of the former were executed, and 60 of the latter. You would be aware of the constant danger of betrayal, even by the members of your monastic order, who might well break down when subjected to torture of the most inhumane kind. These were risks under. Uh, undergone over the centuries by many martyrs of our of your faith, and you would not wish to be any less worthy. Thus would secret cells be formed, though eventually in less dangerous times. It would be essential for them to emerge and attract other adherents if they were not to disappear entirely. But how could this be done? It would be suicidal for the cells to emerge in their original form as extreme Catholic units. It was imperative to find some disguise. But what? Many trade guilds, had, uh, trade guilds had grown out of religious fraternities and were concerned more with the salvation of souls than with the craft matters. They had initiation ceremonies and often had elaborate religious rites in honor of their patron saints, ceremonies that were decidedly Masonic in content. Here was a perfect means of cover, but precisely what form should it take? 
The construction of monasteries and other religious buildings throughout the country meant that the clergy were always in close contact with operative stonemasons. Some monks acted as architects, as masters of the works, and it is known that some actually worked as operatives along with their lay brethren. Rules for the conduct of masons were laid down or at least approved by the monks, and it could well be that some of the surviving Masonic documents from their times, the old charges, were written by them. Indeed, it is probable that monks read them at the admission of craftsmen, a very few operative stonemasons in those days could read or write. At Canterbury, early in the 15th century, the community of masons is often referred to in the accounts of the local priory and was apparently attached to it in the form of a technical school of masonry intimately connected with the clergy. The hall of the London Company of Masons stood on land owned by the priory of the Holy Trinity, to which it attached itself, and even as late as 1665, a banner of the Holy Trinity was carried in all its processions, a symbol that might well have had reference to the ancient motto of the company, God is our guide. Many other examples could be quoted of the common interests and the close relations existing between Masons and the monks. What is more natural, then, than that, they should take on the guise of being a society whose members were essentially interested in architecture. The study of architecture, after all, was universally accepted as being a pastime of gentlemen, many of whom went on a grand tour to study continental aspects of the art. Added to this is the fact that, as religious fraternities concerned with that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, it would be natural for them to incorporate in their ceremonies references to that great building project mentioned in the Bible, King Solomon's Temple at Jerusalem. Granted this, why should men who had no connection with religious fraternities have joined such a newly emergent movement? Man is a social animal, but in the Middle Ages, the only unit had been the family and there had been no scope for social activities outside it. In the 15th century, the winds of change began to blow in more ways than one, and ideas began to emerge that, in the next century, would completely change the social scene and produce an entirely new society. For England, the Middle Ages were quite definitely a thing of the past, and life would never be the same again. There was a social awakening that would lead to the establishment of clubs and coffee houses in which there would be animated discussions on matters concerning the newly discovered world and, for the first time, men would be able to express opinions, social, religious, and political, that would have been impossible in the restricted circle of the family. This was so revolutionary that even those involved in it could hardly comprehend the full implications. It was the beginning of a new era, the like of which had never before been known. One could guess what lay ahead in the social, religious, and economic turmoil, but intel intelligent, clear-thinking men were anxious to take part in it. 
This, however, was for the future and, for the time being, there were dangers. Freemasonry in an elementary form certainly began to emerge at that time. According to my theory, it evolved from the secret monastic cells. To be sure, there are no records of them dating from that time, for strict secrecy was still a paramount necessity. It was dangerous to put forward views that were not in accord with official policy. Many who did so were put to death, and anyone of any persuasion whatsoever who wished to indulge in a political and religious argument would have been well advised to make certain that the person to whom he spoke was of the same mind. Thus, there was an obvious need for secret societies in which opinions of this kind could be fully expressed. Societies having carefully guarded signs for recognizing other persons of similar persuasions. Religious fraternities would not be immune from this tendency, for they, in particular, had much incriminating tradition behind them, and lost much as a result of the Reformation. As a matter of fact, such secret societies were to be a feature of European life until the 19th century, or even later. It is not suggested that underground cells emerge in this precise form, only that these facts must have exercised the minds of their leaders at that time and must have influenced their plans for the future. Is there any reason to think that this was what happened? I suggest that there is. The first record of an initiation in an English lodge is on 16 October 1646, when Elias Ashmold and Colonel Henry Mainwaring were made masons in a lodge at Warrington. This quiet, quite definitely, was a meeting of non-operatives. Obviously, the members present on that occasion must have been initiated sometime previously, but where and when is unknown. Speculative Freemasonry was certainly not invented by them. Moreover, there is no official record of that meeting, nor of the existence of a lodge at Warrington at that time. It is known only through an entry in Ashmole's diary, which means it is probable that many previous meetings were unrecorded for the simple reason that the candidate did not keep diaries, or, what is even more likely, that the absolute secrecy imposed on monastic cells was still paramount. Something that has been bearing on this problem is the existence of what are known as the old charges. They are manuscripts that set out the regulations for the operative mason's trade and are such as diligent and learned priests of the Middle Ages, devout for a few brothers, devout uh, for credulous, apparently well acquainted with the mason craft and craftsmen, might have been expected to compose for the special purpose of, be of being read at meetings of craft masons. Here again, we have the suggestion of a close connection between a religious fraternity and the mason's trade. It is known that these texts were read at such meetings, and indeed later on in lodges that had no connection with the mason's trade. Brother Colin Dyer wrote, Records which can be shown to relate to speculative masonry can be found which date from before 1600. He was referring to the Melrose Number no. 1 manuscript from 1581 and the Grand Lodge manuscript Number no. 1 from 1583. 
I hesitate to think that these copies of the old charges were read in lodges of speculative Freemasonry quite as early as that, though it does seem that operative lodges began to disappear with the cessation of religious building towards the middle of the 16th century. However, the Grand Lodge manuscript number one, in particular, does indicate religious and possible monastic influence in its invocation and does imply the need for secrecy. The might of the Father of Heaven and the wisdom of the glorious Son through the grace and the goodness of the Holy Ghost that be three persons in one God be with us at our beginning and give us grace so to govern us here in our living that we may come to his bliss that never shall have ending. Amen. In 17th century lodges, a copy of one of the old charges was looked upon as being equivalent to a present-day warrant, authorizing the meeting to be held. The oldest surviving such documents are the Regis Poem, circa 1390, and the Cook Manuscript, 1510-1425, both based on an older unknown manuscript. The next one surviving, Grand Lodge Number 1, did not appear until 1583. In more than 100 years following this, there are 50 copies. In all, there are some 120. But despite their basic operative content, they do not prove that operative lodges were still in existence. There is no evidence whatsoever of the existence of operative lodges in England in the 17th century. In fact, their functions were being taken over by the newly emergent trade unions. This enormous surge in the production of such manuscripts most certainly cannot have arisen from an operative demand. So what was the reason for it? Certainly, there were other early versions of the old charges, perhaps 10 of them, written before 1583, and now all lost. But the fact that there are only 10 during the better part of two centuries, as compared with 50 in the following century, and possibly others now lost, cannot be fortuitous. In the 17th century, there was no centralized control and no question of regular meeting of lodges. At a time when men were beginning to join clubs, for reasons already explained, those who had never been connected with the religious fraternities from which the cells emerged, would be admitted as members. It would have been the custom for a few brethren to meet together formally, informally, in order to admit one or more friends to their circle. Thus, lodges possibly only temporary ones that had no connection whatsoever with the Mason's trade would eventually evolve. Certainly, and indeed inevitably, according to my theory, some members would have been Masons by trade. Probably employers, but this would have been incidental to the speculative and social purpose of those lodges. It seems likely that the meeting at Warrington on 16 October 1646 was of this type, and that the Sloan version of the old charges, completed on that day by Edward Sankey, presumably a relative of one of the brethren who was present at Ashmole's admission, was written for this particular ceremony. It also seems likely that from a small number of cells, a substantial network soon evolved, for Robert Plott, in his 
The Natural History of Staffordshire, published in 1686, refers to the society as spread more or less all over the nations. And he adds, I found persons of the most eminent quality that did not disdain to be of this fellowship. He further states, Into which society, when any are admitted, they call a meeting, or lodge, as they term it in some places, which must consist of at least five or six of the ancients of the order. This again suggests that meetings were held at irregular intervals and only when the need arose. Exactly what their ceremonies were like is unknown. At first, no doubt, they would be basically religious, with a cloak of masonry. But as the movement grew and as men were admitted who had no connection with any religious fraternities, the emphasis on religion would diminish. This tendency would be encouraged by the danger already stressed of expressing religious views contrary to official policy. Thus, it is not surprising that eventually all discussion of religious matters would be prohibited, a ruling that undoubtedly would have been welcomed by men who were anxious to escape from the troubles and dissensions of the past century. Moreover, it would be a development that would encourage even more of the newly emergent, clubbable type of individual to seek initiation. Nevertheless, traces of a religious inheritance lingered for a long time. As Brother Harry Mendoza pointed out, the words of a Master Mason, some Masonic catechisms before 1730 show a very strong Christian influence. The actual ceremonies would probably have been quite brief, and soon the sermon or meditation on the scriptures or other religious works would be replaced by talks, discussions, and catechisms. This, in fact, was the custom even as late as the 18th century, a short ceremony followed by a catechism or lecture. One of the problems that has always exercised the minds of Masonic scholars is what caused antiquarians such as Elias Ashmole, Randall Holm, Deputy Garter King of Arms, and other intelligence intellectuals to join the craft. That question would be answered if, as suggested, 17th century Freemasonry was the result of cells of intellectuals emerging from the religious fraternities of the previous century. Once they were initiated, it would have been natural for them to have introduced mysticism and the philosophy of such movements as the Rosicrucians into the ceremonies. In other words, to bring into ex existence the first traces of symbolic Freemasonry, evolving from the operative and non-operative form. Once they were initiated, it would have been natural for them... Oh, I already read that, sorry. Without any central authority... These new features would be introduced into only a few lodges, but gradually, no doubt, they would spread to others and would be grafted onto existing ceremonies. This would be further complicated by the considerable borrowing that these undoubtedly was from ceremonies of Scottish operative lodges. The result would be a peculiar mixture of operative and speculative practices that, in the words of Brother Eric Ward, were so absurdly irrelevant to a society independent of the building trade that to read them to an initiate would only instill doubt in his mind 
as to the sanity of the organization he was about to join. Apart from the Warrington ceremony, what indication is there of Masonic activity in the 17th century? Very little, and none of it is, is primary evidence. It seems likely that, within the Worshipful Company of Freemasons of the City of London, there was a Masonic Lodge into which members were accepted as early as 1621, but this is not definite. There is a list of 27 members of a lodge in Chester in 1673, and a certain Edward Hall claimed that in 1695 he was initiated in a lodge in Chichester, but there are no records of either of these lodges. After Ashmole wrote down the details of his initiation, there is no other Masonic reference in his diary for nearly 36 years. When it is recorded that he attended an initiation ceremony at Mason's Hall, London, on 11 March 1682. The York No. 4 manuscript of 1693 gives the names of six members of a lodge of which nothing is known. In addition, there were references to Masonic meetings from time to time in the press. There was a scurrilous pamphlet of 1696. There was mention of the crafts. There was mention of uh, of the craft and plots, the Natural History of Staffordshire, 1686, and in Aubrey's The Natural History of Wiltshire, 1691. But there were no official records whatsoever. This is not a very inspiring list. It gives the impression of an uncoordinated group anxious not to attract public attention. There is an atmosphere of intense secrecy such as could have been an inheritance from the secret cells of the previous century. The theory I have put forward provides an answer as to why, in some of the old charges written in the 17th century, new clauses introduced that could only apply to operative masons. The compilers were falling into the temptation that so many have found irresistible, the desire to improve the ritual. They were following the long-established custom of an operative cloak, something that Dr. Anderson perpetuated in his Constitutions of 1723 and 1738. They were preserving the tradition of absolute secrecy, as Lawrence Dermot the Grand Secretary of the Ancients did in his Ahiman Resin of 1756, and as the members of the Lodge of Reconciliation did as late as 1816, when they left no record of the new ritual they had compiled. My theory also provides an answer to the following questions. Number one, why is speculative Freemasonry based on operative masonry and not on one of the other trades? Number two, were non-operatives admitted into operative lodges in order for them to survive? Number three, does it follow that what happened in Scotland, a transition from operative to non-operative masonry, also happened in England? Number four, did the religious fraternities disappear entirely when they were dis disendowed in 1547? Number five, why was there a dramatic increase in the number of the old charges from 1538 onwards? Number six, why is there a lack of records in the 17th century when it seems there was so much Masonic activity? 
Number seven. More importantly, why did men of considerable learning join the craft? If my theory is correct, it may then be asked why the premier Grand Lodge of England was founded in 1717 and publicity was given to the craft. To give a complete answer to that would require another paper, but briefly, by the turn of the century, under its cloak of secrecy, Freemasonry was expanding. Men of quality such as the Duke of Richmond were beginning to take an interest in it, and it was obvious that some effort would be needed if order was to be brought out of chaos. The first attempts may have been of a social nature, the holding of an annual feast, but that there were serious intentions underneath is proved by the command given to Dr. Anderson to produce a book of constitutions. The efforts of Dr. Desagulier, Grand Master, 1719-1720, to introduce persons of quality. The election as Grand Master in 1721 of the first nobleman, John, second Duke of Montague, and the subsequent increase in the number of lodges. Even so, it was not until nearly 275 years later, in other words, only last year, that the last shackles of secrecy were finally broken. There I rest my case. Have I persuaded you? Proof I did not promise, but remember that there is no proof of the transition theory. If you still, if you are still unconvinced, will you do something? Will you go along to any large building site you are to choose and look at the men working there? No doubt they are good-hearted men who are fond of their wives and children, excellent husbands and fathers, but can you imagine them accepting antiquarians, garter kings of arms, university graduates, and other learned individuals as members of their trade union branches, accepting them in an increasing numbers until they achieved the majority over the workers and so were able to take control of those trade union branches and change them completely in character so that they no longer had any connection whatsoever with the building trade? That is what you must accept if you still believe in the transition theory. Can you believe it? I cannot. I thank you for your kind attention, and now I am prepared to be burned at the stake, or hung, drawn, and quartered, as you wish, or, in modern terms, to be shot down in flames. And then they have a note at the very end. In only a few cases have I quoted my sources. That is because this paper is based on notes I have accumulated over the years and on odd thoughts that have occurred to me from time to time as a result of reading books on the subject, the number of which is legion, as anyone will discover who asked the British Library for a list. I am deeply grateful to all those known and unknown who have thus helped me. If I have misquoted or misrepresented anyone, I apologize and I am very ready to admit my fault. So there you have it, part two of the Origins of Freemasonry, A New Theory, a talk that was given by Brother Cyril N. Batham to the Philolathes Society back in 1992, as I had mentioned previously. And part of his... Um, part of his talk and part of his reasoning and... and uh, 
uh, how can I say it? His philosophy was to point out that that uh, the transition theory was just that. It was a theory. And that there was no proof of anybody ever joining the operative Masons and then there being so many that joined that they became the majority and then they began to make policy for the operative Masons. Like there's just no proof of that. It's a theory that's out there. It's it's the most popular theory. You see most Grand Lodges, you see our Grand Lodge of California, they've adopted that. They accept that that's the most politically correct. That's what I say. It's the most politically correct origin theory, you know, because it's it's nice and neat. It's clean and you know, it 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 answers in the opinion of many of these gentlemen. It, it answers a lot of these questions that we have, or does it? Does it answer these questions? Because when you take this part one and part two of this uh, lecture that was given, and you begin to meditate on it and do some research, you begin to find that this this may be plausible. Why other Masons haven't? jumped on this bandwagon and began to really, really dig into it and, uh, you know, possibly begin to turn the the tide of the willingness to go along with a theory that's, again, like I said earlier, it's politically correct and it's non-confrontational. And... You don't have to do a lot of work. There, there it is. It's nice and nice and neatly laid out for you. We came from operative masonry. Uh, you know, the masons of that time were needing members. They allowed the laity to come in. You didn't even have to know how to use a level or a square, and you can join. And next thing you know, we're we're more than you, and we're voting you out. And now we're speculative masons. And uh, he didn't make fun of that. He didn't poke fun of that. He just asked the question at the very end and said, man, could you believe it? I mean, you, you still believe in that theory? And if you do, why, basically? Why are you still believing in this theory? And this is where we begin to use our critical thinking skills. Critical thinking skills that are presented to us. I've been recently following a lot of lodges on Instagram. And guess what? They've been initiating people and they've been passing people into the second degree. And guess what? In the second degree, you're introduced to a tool and mechanism to help you increase your critical thinking skills. Three of which are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And like I told Brother Rob Johnson in an interview I had with him on Whence Came You podcast, I said we're introduced to grammar, logic, and rhetoric, but very rarely do we use it. Why? Is it too much work, brethren? Is it too much work to begin to question everything? Is it too tiring to continue to be asked the question, why? Well, why? Well, why did that happen? Well, what, why, why didn't this happen instead? Well, what about this? And wh- wh- how? And what? And when? 
is it too tiring to continue to explore ideas and to continue to explore possibilities? Do you just want to show up to lodge, eat your uh, water waterlogged green beans and rubber chicken, go to a boring meeting and then come home and then say you're proud of being a Mason, you're, you're proud of that? Or do you want to explore ideas? You want to put your mind to work. You want to start strengthening your Masonic muscle, which takes work and effort and dedication and discipline, right? That's what it does. That's what it takes. There is no other way. You got to put in the work. And that's one of the ways of, of the several ways that our fraternity is going to get stronger. We just got hit with the pandemic. And a lot of people are still wondering what the hell just happened. And when you have ideas being shut down because it's not following the parting line, you are effectively killing critical thinking. You have Joe Rogan. Uh, he was under a little bit of, he was, he's still under the gun. You know, uh, he had some doctors and they, they were challenging the, the party line. And he came under, you know, direct attack from the censorship. And everybody forgot that Joe Rogan, all he does is have conversations. So are what they're saying, are, are what we're saying that we cannot have conversations anymore then? And if we do, someone official has to be there to make sure we don't say the wrong things. Is that where it's headed? And on, you know, Freemasonry now, Freemasonry, free thinking, freeborn. You know, are we willing to give that up by not wanting to explore ideas? You be the judge. This is Cesar Rubio. This is Masonic Muscle. Peace out.